0: Well, let's stand and read the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than those, sorry, than these, he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So let's uh, have a seat, and we'll jump right in. I'll just give you a few words of introduction to help us remember where we left off uh, Remember, in, in the chapter fourteen up to this point that jesus had been sharing a meal with the disciples in the upper room this was the eve of the passover the night before the crucifixion and passover was normally a joyous celebration within israel and the people were basically in party mode remembering their freedom from, Isra- uh, from exodus when god delivered them from, uh, from pharaoh but on this particular night Uh, the disciples were experiencing um, something totally in contradiction to pure joy. They were actually having uh, quite uh, an emotionally disturbing night. You see, Jesus had dropped a few bombs on them. Uh, He had had just revealed the pride that existed in them by the uh, washing of their feet when no one got up to to do anything after he had just clearly taught them in previous months and years that they were to be one of servitude. But more so, he just told them that one of them was going to betray them. Betray him, actually. And he also predicted that Peter was going to deny him. Finally, he had told them also that he was going to be abandoning them. So again, on a joyous night, normally everyone in Israel is in party mode. And here he is, dropping bombs on them over and over. Denial, betrayal, abandoning. And the disciples were wavering in their faith. And the effects were obvious, because in fourteen one. The disciples were troubled. And we've looked at that word. Their souls were shaken up or stirred up. And so Jesus calls them into a deeper level of faith. And he asks them to put the same trust in him as they had in God. And the reason was because he prepared a place in heaven for them. And he was going to escort them there. And this is all going to be possible through his death and resurrection. Therefore, he was able to make two bold statements to them. The first one was in in, um, 14.6. he was the only way to the Father, right? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father but through me. But the second statement he made was that basically that to know and see him was to know and see God, right? You see that? He says, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. So again, that's clear to us as New Testament Christians 2,000 years later. But evidence Uh, In Philip's response, shows that this was something very hard for them to still grasp. Because in verse 8, after Jesus declares these things, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Clearly, from that comment, Philip wasn't totally grasping what Jesus was saying, because he asked then to have a physical manifestation of God. He wanted to get confirmation in his wavering faith that God could give him a physical, tangible experience of him. What Philip was asking for was actually not uh, totally uncommon in Israel's history. Um, uh, It was rare, but it did happen. Uh, Perhaps he was thinking of Jacob in Genesis 32. Remember when Jacob left, uh, was running from Esau? Uh, One night the Lord appeared to him. And had a conversation with him and blessed him. Uh, Samson's parents in Judges 13 um, had the Lord appear to him in a physical manifestation to tell them that they were going to have a son and to dedicate him as an, as a, with a Nazarite vow, which of course <coughs> And Moses even in Exodus 33 and 34 prayed to God for a physical manifestation. He said, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show your glory, but it's going to come the way I want. So go hide in this rock over here, and I'll pass by you. So you see, Philip's response in a moment of wavering faith was to ask for a physical manifestation, and perhaps in his mindset, that wasn't something unreasonable to ask based on Israel's past experiences. Well, Jesus Jesus responds to him and says this in verse 9, "'Have I been so long with you, Philip?' and yet you have not come to know me? (coughs) He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Very interesting that uh, Philip has, Jesus responds in this way because he says basically to Philip, the very thing you're asking for, Philip, this manifestation of God in your life in a physical way, you've already got it. I'm right here in front of your eyes, buddy. Just open them and you will have seen God. You want to see God? I'm right here. Now, Jesus didn't want Philip to understand that God was a, a Jew. Like, he wasn't saying this. What you see physically is God. Like, here's, a, I'm God is a Jew. God has brown skin and uh, dark wavy hair. That's not what he meant by mm. saying, if you've seen the Father, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he was referring to was the fact that he had seen God in his nature. In his nature or in his character. And we'll talk about this in a second. But Hebrews 1, to 1-3 is a good illustration of this. Hebrews 1, to 1-3, <coughs> the author says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds things by the word of his power. So Philip was God, or Jesus was saying to Philip, I'm right here in character, I'm right here in nature, to know me is to know God. Now he understood that he was claiming, like Phil, Jesus understood he was claiming words of deity, like that he was in fact uh, God himself. But he knew Philip and the disciples were having a hard time comprehending this. So he wanted to provide two clarifying points for them to consider for why they could have faith that Jesus' claims to be God were trustworthy. And we pick up the first one in verse 10. He wanted Philip to know that they could discern God's voice through Jesus' words. Or in other words, it it should have been evident to him that he was God based on the way he spoke. Look at verse 10. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does his works." (coughs) See Jesus was clear to Philip here that when he spoke, his words did not come from independent thoughts in his (coughs) own head. These were not, when Jesus spoke and taught, he wasn't saying to the boys, listen, um, here's what I think about this situation. By making that declaration, he was saying the words and the things that I say are directly from the Father. They're like a mirror image. (coughs) Now, he told them this before in chapter 12, verse 49. You may remember this. He said, uh, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and to what to speak. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father had told me. So this is not new to Philip and the disciples. Jesus had told them this before. When he spoke, they were directly words from God, and they were to be a mirror image. Now, that's very different than, than what I do for you as your pastor. Right? When I come before you, I do everything I can to only declare God's truth to you. And I do everything I can to only speak truth to you. I, we study, we, we prepare, we, we do everything we can. But when I come up here, I am still subject to error. And I'm still subject to saying things out of my own head that are not from God. Even though I try as darnest <coughs> as I can to stick to the truth of God. In fact, I would know that after every Sunday, if God was to come to me personally and take me into a room by myself away from you and they'd say let me just tell you everything that was from me that you said was true but let me tell you a couple of things that you probably should have said a little differently that were not from me right i have i'm confident that god would say that to me right that's not what jesus is doing when he's making those declarations he's actually saying when you hear me speak there's no deviation from god's word nothing when i speak in forgiveness that's directly what God would say. When I speak on marriage, that's directly what God would say. When I speak on sexuality and how to live, that's what God would say. When I tell you how to handle your, your finances, that's exactly what God would say. All of my words and my speech are given to me by the Father. And Jesus was challenging Philip. He's basically saying like, something like this. I know you guys are on shaky ground right now with your faith. But I want you to know, to give you assurance that you can evaluate everything I have said and know that you are speaking to God. That's why he preemptively asks this question in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Do you not believe this? Let me give you some evaluating tools. The words I say are identical to his. And if the disciples didn't believe based on the words alone... They were to secondly believe on the actions that they saw from Jesus. Look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Again, this is not the first time Jesus had told them to look at the works or the miracles that he'd done as evidence that he was God. In John 10.25, he said, The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about me. In other words, they were to recognize... God in the fact, or, or uh, that God, Jesus was God based on the supernatural things that they had seen. Now you think about this, and we've talked about this off and on throughout the Gospel. Jesus performed miracles that only God had done in Israel's history. He's the only one. Okay? Who else but God could control nature? God and the, takes the, the Red Sea, Parts it so that Israelites can walk through it. He has control over the oceans. And um, later on, in near Galilee, Jesus controls the sea. He walks on water. No one in Israel's history could feed thousands of people who needed provisionary (coughs) care. God in the desert feeds them manna and quail for 40 years. (coughs) Jesus in Galilee, near Galilee, has about 20,000 people there, and he produces fish and bread out of loaves and, and fish out of two fish and yeah, I forget how many <laughs> two, fish, five loaves. Two, fish. two fish and five loaves is that what it is? but he says that and he duplicates God's <laughs> miraculous supervisionary care or provisionary care uh, no one in Israel's history had power over disease or, or sickness um, God in, in, in judgment of Miriam for call, uh, being jealous of Moses gave her leprosy Gave her leprosy. Then cured her of leprosy. Jesus was curing lepers like nobody's business throughout his three-year ministry. There was a belief in the Old Testament that only God had the power to give sight and had control over human vision. Jesus restores a blind man from birth. And how about life of, uh, the power of God to raise people from the dead and to give life? There was a young boy in, um, I believe it's in Kings. i have to double check my source. But uh, I believe it was in Second Kings or First Kings. Um, God raises a young boy from, from the dead. And Jesus takes Lazarus and raises him from the dead after four days in the tomb. You see, Jesus saying to Philip, listen, I've given you my words to know that I'm God. We're in direct uh, correlation with one another. But if you have troubles even believing that, look at the things I've done. And only God has done that in history. And I'm doing that in your presence. (coughs) Know, know, uh, Philip, that you can believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So when when Philip asks Jesus, can I see the Father? Can you give me a manifestation of God just to give me confidence in my time of wavering faith? Jesus basically says this. When you look at my character, you can see God. When you look at, listen to my words, you can hear God. And when you look at my actions, you can witness God at work. Now, remember too, the disciples' biggest fear now was that <coughs> Jesus was going to abandon them. And they were fearful that the messiah, messianic expectations were not going to be fulfilled in him. And he'd been talking about dying and abandoning and leaving them. So all the works that they've been witnessing, both in word and deed, and the things they would seen Jesus perform, would surely come to an end if he was to leave them. And they were enjoying these moments. So what Jesus then has to do is reassure them that the, quite, the, the opposite would actually happen. So their fear is that if, if Jesus was to leave, all this comes to an end. And in the next verses he's going to say, by the way, the opposite is going to happen by me leaving it's actually going to be even greater than what you're going to hear and see we pick this up in 12 to 14 he says truly truly I say to you he who believes in me the works that I do he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the father whatever you ask in my name that I will do so that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask me anything in my name I will do it Just uh, want to sort of break away from the main focus of the notes here, and just to say that these verses are probably some of the most controversial and misunderstood in the Bible. Right? I mean, listen to the words here. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Uh, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. I don't know about you, but I've heard in the Christian church that this is a belief that we will continue to do even greater miracles than Jesus will do. Right? Have you heard that in the word faith movement, the, they'll often quote verses like this and say, well, if Jesus did these kind of things, then clearly we are going to do these things too. But because we're not seeing them, it's clearly because of our lack of faith. So if we only had faith and we learned to pray in Jesus' name, then all these things would be happening and we'd be doing greater things than, than, than Jesus'. Uh, you know, in, in verse 13 with this asking in Jesus' name and he will do it I, uh, we again, we have this belief in a lot of Christian circles that if you just attach the name of Jesus to your prayers, it'll happen right? So that, you know, you pray for X, Y, and Z, and if I just say in Jesus' name, it should happen because verse 13 promises that this will happen now so they treat this this attaching Jesus' name to a prayer like a magic formula in which you can control how much God has involvement in your life. Now for you in here, this might seem silly, you might laugh at this, but I'll tell you Stuart and I experienced this in our gym about five years ago. I want to tell you a true story that happened to us, and um, these young men are not in our lives anymore, uh, for various circumstances, nothing bad happened, but just through just a uh, life life happening. But these guys were prevalent in their life. And let me tell you a story that happened to us. Um, these men used to talk to Stuart and I and tell us that uh, you could pray in the name of Jesus and anything physically could be possible in this world and they believed that we were had the right and the ability to do greater works than Jesus because he had promised it. So they were all about the supernatural, all about the miracles in this world. So much so that uh, one day Um, one of the young men came up to me as I walked in. He was working out in my gym. He came up to me and said, man, I had the best workout I've ever had in my life. And I said, why? He goes, I was pain-free throughout the whole workout. And I said, how's that? He goes, well, every time I was hurting and burning, I'd pray in the name of Jesus that the burn would go away, and it would go away. (laughs) So he'd be like pumping weights. and like, in the name of Jesus, make this go away. Make this go away. And he was claiming that all these supernatural things were happening during the workout. And the other guy who was with them, his partner, was claiming the identical thing, and they were all about this um, in the name of Jesus. And they were trying to convince Stuart and I that the reason why we were always hurting when we were training and we're sore and had injuries is because we weren't had enough faith to pray in the name of Jesus. So we laugh about this, but this was actually happening in our lives. And these t- same two guys, one of them s- still goes down in Redding, California, at Bethel Church for the Supernatural Miracles Conference that happens every year, and their thing, and they're fully believed in all this type of stuff. The irony of this is that uh, one of the guys had to stop working out because he ended up with a back injury. And the other guy ended up having to get hip surgery about a year later. Anyway, so that's another, another story. But here's a question, and you know the answer to this. Is that what Jesus was really promising here? Was he promising to us that we would do greater miracles than him? Is he promising that to the disciples? Was he promising that we could ask anything in the name of Jesus and we'd get it? Like a new house, a new new money, new nose, neck, like new shoes, like whatever. You know? Some of us who have good noses in here recognize that prayer and how <laughs> much you'd want that answered. <coughs> yeah, of course not, right? So I want to help you walk through contextually why this is not what he's saying and help you understand what he was saying here. First, the way to work through this is understand the Greek word for works. Okay? The Greek word for gr- works, because he says you'll do greater works, is ergon. Ergon. Now, it can refer to deeds or actions. And we find this word, and it can be either good or bad things. I'll give you one in John 3:19. In John 3, 19, this is the word works occurring here. He says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds or works were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds or works will be exposed. So here, <coughs> deeds can be good things, but deeds also mm. can be bad things. Okay. But it's used in two other different scenarios within the Gospels. It is true that works can refer to miracles. They can refer to miracles. I'll give you one in chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. You'll see the word works here used. Jesus is passing by in Jerusalem. He sees a blind man at birth. His disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man's sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what was the context there? He's restored his sight. So works can be good or bad things. In action, they can be referenced to miracles. But works can also revert to the spreading of the gospel or evangelism. Turn with me to John 17, chapter, verses 1 to 4. 17, 1 to 4. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may, be, may glorify you, even as you have given him authority all over all flesh, that to all, all whom you have given him he may have eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God that, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, I, having accomplished the work which you have given to me. What's the work that he had to be given to him? Jesus came... To preach the gospel and to spread the gospel message. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, it says he was um, doing miracles all over the Galilee region, and, and that people were gathering at the door of this house and then pressing on the door, and it was so many people, the whole town came to this home to get healed by Jesus. And in verse 38 and 39, Jesus says this to them He says, that in paraphrase, Uh, let's get out of here because I didn't come to heal, I came to preach the gospel. And so they leave town and start spreading the gospel everywhere. His number one mission, his number one work, his number one work was the spreading of the gospel. So when you look at this passage, people always interject in John 14, the work here must be miracles. I would suggest that the context, based on Jesus' primary work, is evangelism and the spreading of the gospel. Greater works you will do, not miracles, greater works you will do will be, this, you will affect more people with the gospel than I did in my lifetime. Here as a physical God in flesh in Israel. What was the passage where Christ left the. the uh, <coughs> Mark, Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 32 to 39. Now, I'll substantiate this claim that the works here is the gospel message and not miracles. I mean, it can include miracles, but it's primarily evangelism. Consider the disciples' history after Jesus made this claim, right? Because he's saying, greater works you will do. It's future. That hasn't happened yet. So it's going to be, let's consider the history of what happened in the disciples' lives. And let's look at the reality for us as believers today, if God was telling us this is going to happen for us as well. Let's look at the apostles. Did they perform miracles? Yes, they did. Did they ever perform greater miracles than Jesus in either power or frequency not even close there's no apostle ever walking on water there's no apostle feeding thousands of people uh, uh, creating food out of thin air there's no, there's only Paul raises the dead once when the, the guy, was, he's preaching and he fell out of the he put him to sleep and he fell out of the house and he came down and he prayed over him Right? Once, Jesus raised more than Lazarus. He raised Jairus' daughter. Okay? But here's the thing. No one ever... The apostles, in terms of performing greater works, never superseded Jesus in power and frequency. Never did. How about us today? How many of you here have a ministry that's performing greater power and frequency of miracles than Jesus is doing? Any church in Okotoks? Nope. Any church in the world? Nope. Okay? So either Jesus is lying, or contextually something else is going on here. Well, we can clearly see then, that the greater works must be, that Jesus is referring to, the spreading of the Gospel. Especially when you compare it to what His ministry looked like, to what the Apostles and ours look like now. Again, look at back in history and our present realities. Okay, Jesus' entire ministry never extended beyond Israel he spoke to Galilee and Judea he never went outside of Israel right it was largely in Galilee and Judea at his death when he died the majority of Israel who showed some hopes of faith had rejected him by the end in fact in the upper room in acts well, there were 120 loyal followers in the upper room i'm not saying there were more than there wasn't more than 120 believers but in terms of his closest group knit people There were only 120 in Israel gathered in the upper room that night when they were praying. Christianity, then, had only spread to a very small geographical area and to a small contingency of people. Fifty days later, after Jesus dies and goes to heaven, and and the Holy Spirit comes, under the ministry of the apostles, Christianity explodes, and thousands who had rejected Jesus' message within Israel were now embracing it. The entire book of Acts is that way. Think in Acts 2:41, 3,000 souls were added who had rejected Jesus after 50 days later after he was resurrected. 3,000 souls in one, in one in one sermon from from Peter. By Acts chapter 4, 5,000 people come to Christ. By Acts in Acts 6, priests who had put him on the cross were coming to faith. By Acts 8, Samaria had received the gospel. By Acts 10, the Gentiles had received the gospel. And by the end of the book of Acts, the gospel had gone from Israel all the way to Rome. It had gone all the way. If you look on the map today of Palestine and Rome, look at all the countries in between. The gospel had spread in the in, in 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 two or three decades across the entire known region. And look at us today in terms of greater works. The gospel now has gone across the sea and is now in every known country in the world. Even Okotoks. So even without, without a doubt. When Jesus told the disciples. They would do greater works than he did. And it was not it was to a greater extent. In terms of the mission work of the gospel message. <coughs> mission work of the gospel message. Now. I'm not trying to make fun of my friends. But if they had understood this. My buddy wouldn't have had to have hip surgery. Because how he got hurt. Was he was laying on his back. With his knee. Like his leg over his other leg crossed like this. I can't even cross my leg that's all flexible I'm. Sorry Laura for embarrassing the human's ability to do anything. Um, and he had his partner sitting on his leg bouncing up and down like this to build more flexibility in him, and he tore his labrum in his hip. But in the name of Jesus he was pain free. Here's the thing: If the poor guy had just understood that that wasn't, you know, going to make any difference to flexibility, and Jesus wasn't going to be part of that uh, healing process or that flexibility process, surely he would have still have never had to go into the night. I'm not making fun of them, but this is the kind of mentality that people get into, and how misunderstanding the scriptures can get you in a whole lot of trouble. So I think I, I think uh, as a church, you would understand contextually with those observations why. The greater works Jesus is referring to here is gospel efforts, okay? And proof in Acts and proof in our lives is how we've been given these things to do and how this actually impacted the world. Jesus had a few band of followers, had very little impact in the world in terms of salvation, and now the gospel is across the entire globe, and we and the apostles were part of that ministry. But I want to leave you with a couple more observations before we uh, walk out of here. I want you to notice the event that was the catalyst to these greater works. There was an event that occurred was the catalyst to these greater works being done. Uh, You'll pick it up in verse um, uh, 12. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying this, It's necessary that I die, be resurrected, and go to glory for the greater works to be done. That's another substantiation for why this is gospel, present- or gospel evangelistic efforts. You see, the disciples, remember this, the disciples' biggest fear was losing Jesus because they thought, uh-oh, the messianic expectations are going to stop. God's purposes for our lives in Israel are going to, and the world are going to stop and cease. Jesus is saying it's necessary that I go for greater gospel efforts to occur. Now why is that? Well, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's no message of hope for humanity. There is no gospel without the death and resurrection of Jesus. He died as a substitute for sin to bring us in relationship to God. So without him going to the Father, there's no message to preach. So again, he has to go for the gospel to have, a, to have a platform. Furthermore, without him going to heaven, there's no possibility of us receiving the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that, we're going to get into this next week, but it's interesting that after he makes these declarations, verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. So it's necessary, it goes to the Father, not only that the gospel have a, a platform, but the Holy Spirit comes to help mm-hmm. us in the evangelistic efforts that we are to do. You see, Jesus, as a sole figure in Israel, can impact the globe. But if the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can, can transcend the globe and can convict the world of sin and, and, and empower our lives to do, uh, to do evangelistic efforts. So it's going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to empower these guys and us to do greater works. And it was through the Holy Spirit that the church would be enabled to do the work of God. And again, we're going to get into this more next week. I I want to say a lot more, but we can't. Like next week is a teaching on, actually next week will be an Easter service, but the following week will be, uh, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? And we're going to get into that in the following sermons, which will be a great great, uh, series to get into. So again, the disciples didn't understand this at the time, but Jesus is saying this I know you're worried about me going, but you have to understand there's greater things coming, and I'm not leaving you empty. I'm bringing you a comforter, I'm bringing you a helper, I'm bringing you someone to, be, to, to uh, further uh, my missionary efforts and your involvement in it. But lastly, another key observation let's look at the importance of prayer. There's an importance of prayer in accomplishing these greater works. You see that in 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now again, contextually, I think we've slam dunked it here, but he's not saying, if you pray in my name, it's a magic formula that obligates God to bend the knee at all your requests, and every whim. He's saying this, if you pray in my name, he's saying this, in accordance with all that my name stands for. And in context, the greater works are gospel spreading, the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you're praying for the furtherance of the gospel, if you're praying for more people to hear about my message, if you're praying for more people to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, and you're praying for God's salvation to reach the ends of the earth, I will do it. I will be involved in that thing. In context is king here, right? Look in 12a, the first part of 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do We've already discovered the work she's talking about is the spreading of the gospel. Spreading of the gospel. So if you ask in my name for the gospel to be spread, just like I did, I want and you ask for those things, the gospel, I will be involved in your prayer lives. I will be involved in that. I will be, I will be aiding and, and doing everything I can to, to further that, that kingdom purpose. And I'll finish with a great example. And I think you should turn with me to finish the sermon of Acts chapter 1. <coughs> Let's look at all these in principle being, being applied. And you'll see this coming to fruition in the apostles' lives. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. <coughs> Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Okay, so here's in verse 15 of John. He's already said, I have to, I have to go to the Father so the greater works will be accomplished and the Spirit's coming. So look at verse uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, greater works, right, evangelistic efforts, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. So it's the promise of the Holy Spirit I promise of the comforter, the helper coming for evangelistic efforts. <clears throat> Let's look at chapter 1, thir- t- uh, chapter one verse uh, 13. So now the disciples and all the 120 have gathered together. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, and he gives the list. Now look what they're doing in there. Look what they're doing in there in verse 14. These with all one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and the Mary and the brother of Jesus. What are they praying for? The coming of the Spirit, the power to be witnesses. In same with what John's asking for. You're going to do greater works. Ask in my name and I will do it. And there's a Spirit coming. They're praying in accordance with what he asked for in John 14. <coughs> what are the results? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house and they were sitting there. And what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon them. What are the results? Look at verse 14 in chapter 2. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. What does he do? preaches the gospel. What are the results of the gospel? Verse 37, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent. What are the results? Verse 37. i um, oh, sorry, verse 41. They, uh, they, those who had received this word were baptized and in the day they were added to about 3,000 souls to the community of believers. You see... Everything John, Peter, or Jesus was saying in John 14 was fulfilled in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and through the remaining of the rest of the book. It started off in Israel, started off in Jerusalem on a small scale and blew up all the way to Rome and today is an Okotoks and the whole, globe has, the whole globe has seen the fulfillment of John chapter 14. Again, promise of His Holy Spirit, Prayer being the key to ask for him to be involved in evangelistic efforts in his name, by his will, and the greater work of God will be done. Okay, lots to be said there, but I'll give you um, three lessons that I think are key. There's far more than this in here. Um, you know, they probably could give you eight lessons, but I just thought I'd hold only the three and you guys can uh, add to my list if you'd like in discussion. The first lesson is this very plain, but very profound. To know Jesus is to know God. Jesus said, Philip says, I want to know you. I want to know God. I want a physical manifestation of God. And Jesus says, You got him. Right here. Right here. Look at my character, consider my words consider my actions. you don't need a physical manifestation. you've got them. You got them. I think this is really important in our culture. you know I'm not making fun of anybody or slighting anybody <coughs> and I, it's actually make, this has been really challenging to me in my own, in my own thinking of how I speak to people. But let me tell you a practical example of what happened at Laura's dance recital on Thursday. and she wasn't there so she didn't see it because uh, she's in backstage. Um, but as, a, as a, one in the audience, this is what happened. A young man introduced um, her choreographer, who's a Christian, to the group to say, uh, he asked him a few questions in front of the audience before the dance started and then at the end of the, at the, end of the recital to basically give co- closing remarks. So her is her a Christian and the, before he got up there, this guy was talking about how the, the music and the dancing was quote-unquote zen. He said that was a really Zen experience. Okay, so clearly he's thinking from probably a Buddhist perspective, right? And and he's thinking this is a very spiritual moment with the music and everything. So the guy gets up there and he asks him about what, the choreographer about what inspired him, and he gives credit to God for his inspiration, and that's great. And that's nothing, thing. But the guy beside him is going like this, like nodding in agreement that God's part of this in his creative work, because to him God. Is like if you make any declaration our culture, do you believe in God? You'll say yes. Because God is the universe. God is within you. God is Buddha. Or well actually Buddhists wouldn't say there is a God, so never mind. But the universe is part you're all part of God in terms of the universe. Uh, God is this, God is that, God is so and so. Thing about it is, is that everyone in that crowd would have no problem with that choreographer declaring that God's part of purposes, part of his purposes, because everyone has their version of God. I'm wondering if as Christians in our culture, based on what we should say is start substituting in Jesus. See, a totally different reaction if you said, I want to give glory to Jesus for the way this my choreography came, wouldn't that change the response of the people listening? I doubt that God would have been doing this after he said that. Because God in our culture has no reference to Jesus Christ, none. Only in the Christian community. Nowhere else is Jesus God. Not in Islam. Not in Mormonism. Not in Jehovah Witnesses. Not in atheist. Nowhere. So I was just challenged in my own thinking. When when we read this and we go, yeah, I know Jesus is God. Because it says that in the scriptures. Yeah, but in application. If we started change, exchanging his name for God in our dialogue, that would change a lot, I think. That's just my own convictions and own thoughts and my own uh, own. Um, in my own studies, and again, it's important I think to think in these ways based in our culture where God's name is used universally and is not attached to any person of significance. Lesson two: uh, to pray and ask for anything in the name of Jesus is to pray in accordance with His <coughs> desires and purposes. And, I, and basically. What are his desires and purposes? It's the spread of the gospel. To pray in the name of Jesus is not a magic formula where you attach his name to whatever you want and you'll get it. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in accordance with his desire for the gospel message to be spread across the world. He says, if you pray in that way, I will be involved and I will be working towards accomplishing that. I mean, the context of the passage, I think, supports this. But here's the application question for us. What's our prayer lives like? And this is convicting for me. Is your and my prayer life more about my kingdom and what I want? Or more about what God's (coughs) kingdom is and what he wants? So is our prayer life more like, please, you know, take care of my... um, you know my financial situation be involved in, in this and be involved in that and be involved in this and do this for me do that for me or is it more like god there's a bunch of hurting people in okotoks that don't have a clue who you are can you help me in my life and the genesis house as a community reach these lost people and that's actually have an impact in here and, and jesus says if you ask in my name for those things i will be in the and i'll be in, in that work and the Holy Spirit's role, as we're going to find out in a couple of weeks, is to convict the people uh, of, of, of sin and to know that Jesus is, is, is the Savior. But again, what's our prayer's life like? Are they focused more on God's purposes or are they more focused on our purposes? I think it's a valid question. And finally, three, Jesus' death and resurrection was necessary for the greater spread, nor in brackets, but greater works, of the gospel message. Right. All of the context of this whole thing occurring is the catalyst has to be him going to the Father. He says, I, blah, 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 blah. I do this because I go to the Father. It's necessary for the crucifixion, necessary for the resurrection, for the greater works to be accomplished. So again, the, the death and resurrection is necessary for the greater works, the greater spreading of the gospel message. His It was necessary because as a sole individual living in a small geographical area Jesus was limited in who he could impact he, he was one man with one message basically a lone shark these 12 guys were, were not I mean they had occasional messages and occasional missionary journeys but they were really unaffected until Jesus died mm-hmm. after that Israel took off in their, in their <coughs> salvation and so did Samaria and so did the Gentiles and so did the rest of the Mediterranean world so, again, the catalyst for the greater um, gospel message being spread was the, necessary, the necess- necessity of the death and resurrection. And it was also necessary that the Holy Spirit would come through his death and mm-hmm. resurrection. Again, <laughs> the Holy Spirit can convict the world of sin and act globally. But Jesus is one man without the Spirit, doesn't have that, can't do that. Secondly, uh, the disciples in their context were not thinking of salvation in terms of the uh, outside of the Jewish people. They weren't thinking that Gentiles were to be saved. They didn't care about them. In fact, Jesus had to constantly teach them. Gentiles are included in God's plan. And they're like, no, they're not. Send down thunder on them and and kill them. And what are you doing eating in their houses? Like, what are you doing? Like, this is crazy. Right? That's why Peter had to be appeared to by God in the vision to say, you can go to, to this uh Cornelius' house it's going to be okay what do you mean we never do this I've never eaten anything unclean in my life no I've changed I'm changing things you can go there you're alright you know like God was teaching these men that the greater the gospel was meant for more than just the Israelite people the gospel was for the entire globe and it was necessary for him to die and be resurrected for them to get this if he didn't they wouldn't have got this to the same degree and lastly, they were, he was teaching them, they were the ones to be the catalysts. He, he, Jesus was going to use them to spread the message. You 12, you're gonna, I'm going to start with you guys, and then we're going to build other disciples and, and get the gospel globally out as well. Well, I, that's about it for me. Um, I think I've said all I can say. And again, I was, I'm hoping that everything I said was from the word of the, word of the Lord, I'm not claiming that I'm uh, speaking words like Jesus, where he was saying identical everything God would want him to say, but I was, you know, through the power of the Spirit, doing everything I could to uh, present the truth and the only truth.